Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash and use my code IsaacArthur. Good afternoon everyone, we'll be leaping into the live stream in just a moment, so please start getting your questions into the live chat now so we can get to as many as possible today. We also have started grabbing some questions in advance of the show to avoid any dead air time waiting on questions or doing audiovisual checks, so as a heads up for future shows, once we schedule the next live stream, usually a few days before we do it, you can start leaving questions and comments in the chat. And also, if we don't get to your question today, feel free to leave it as a comment and I'll try to get in and answer it afterwards. With that said, welcome and let's get to it. Good afternoon everybody, we're just going to go ahead and leap right into questions today with a couple we had from Facebook in advance. Vasco Douglas asks, might we one day use some sort of quantum data link between Earth and far-off future vessels, colonies, or aliens? Um, one of the problems with the quantum entanglement idea, this kind of this notion that you could um, speak to people fast and light by using quantum entanglement is that's not how quantum entanglement generally works. There is that spooky action at distance where things do appear to go fast and light, but all that's telling you is what the state of that particle is. Uh, as an example, if I send somebody a note that says on this letter, uh, there is going to be a number 0 or 1, and there's an identical letter that says 0 or 1 but the opposite of what you have, I'm going to send both those letters out. And I can go ahead and open that letter when I get it, see a 0, and know the other person has a 1 on their letter. I know that piece of information faster than light, but I still don't know what was contained on that letter otherwise, just that those two things are up and down respectively. And that's kind of how quantum entanglement and spooky action at distance works. There's no way we can think of that would tell us faster than light what someone was saying, or at least that wouldn't allow you to find out afterwards. You could say, you know, you know this information but it doesn't mean anything to you until the slower than light or light speed communication reaches you. Um, let's see. Our next question is from Keith Blockus. He asks, how would or should we go to near-term asteroid comet mining, i.e. tow-to-processing tow location, on-site mining, robotics, crash or land on Luna, etc.? There's always this kind of notion when you have a, uh, when you're doing asteroid mining is are you bringing the asteroid home or are you doing all your, uh, doing all your material extraction there and sending that home? And then uh, how do you actually get it back to Earth or back into orbit? Because in general, with most of the material, you don't actually want to get it down to Earth. There's plenty of iron on Earth. We want iron for in orbit or at the moon. Um, when you talk about things like gold and platinum, yeah, you, you might actually want to land those on Earth, though. Since a lot of those are commodities we're using to some degree as a currency, you don't necessarily need to land those on Earth than the useful to Earth. You might keep them in a repository. But those are small enough, you might just go ahead and put them in a, a re-entry pod and let them land on Earth and use that to break your speed. Otherwise, when you're sending this stuff home, you want to make sure it's going slow enough that it gets captured in orbit around Earth. You can't just send it back there and you don't want to just crash in the planet. Uh, and that does require a very slow process unless you want to burn a lot of fuel slowing it down. You prefer to burn no fuel. And you prefer to burn, burn a minimum when it was leaving too. The thing about um, mineral extraction cases like this is that by and large you don't really need it right this moment. You need a steady supply of it. You don't care if the iron you're mining today will be 10 years before anyone actually gets around to, uh, to being used. And... Um, you just need that supply to be stable, and so if it takes forever to get there from wherever you're mining it, even under the solar system, all you really need to know is that it's going to get there and about when. And uh, so you can get away with very slow uh, motions, pretty much the minimum need to get it into orbit, or the minimum needed to get it from Alpha Centauri back home. And if you're doing long term, you know, ion that's on its way back home from Alpha Centauri and is going to take a few millennia, that's fine. So. Um, as to processing, you either going to do that on site or you're going to have to do that at some midway point. You want to use the minimum fuel possible to move that thing, so that means preferably doing your refining there. Though it might depend on circumstances. You know, in the asteroid belt, you might uh, haul an asteroid to a central processing location in the belt, which doesn't require too much uh, delta V, or haul your your rough ore there and do the refining there. That is one of those things, though, that we'll end up finding out what the best way is when we actually do it. We can guess right now, but that's about it. Uh, 
Nikolai Belezhik asks, your thoughts on the political difficulties of building an orbital ring, can we overcome them in the near future? The big one for an orbital ring, which again, for those who don't know, is a ring usually around the equator, though it doesn't have to be, that just goes around the entire planet. It's effectively stationary because it's a two-piece object. It's got an inside that's moving very fast and outside that is not. And uh, it has a net momentum to stay in orbit around Earth as a stationary object. Um, you have to build that over top of places, though, and it has to go around the entire planet. Although, as we discussed in some of those episodes, you don't necessarily need to make these circles. They don't necessarily need to be ellipses, and they don't necessarily actually need to be all around the planet. You could do uh, the equivalent of a launch loop, a uh, very similar concept. Um, you have to get right away. So in a way, it's, it's very similar to trains. I don't think most countries would appreciate, you know, we, we let satellites orbit around the Earth right now over everybody's territory. And that can be contentious at times, too. But uh, you want to build a stationary object fixed 80 miles over top of somebody's country, you're going to need to get their permission, realistically. And uh, it's not necessarily the equatorial countries in that band, because again, you can put one at an angle, though that's more difficult because you have possession to deal with. But uh, you are going to have to actually get their permission to do something like that. And that's a negotiation diplomatic thing. I believe it's certainly possible. We built trans, uh, transcontinental railroads that are not just in one country. But it is going to be one of those things we have to negotiate to get that port off. Okay, let's get to questions from the actual chat. And you can go ahead and put questions in the chat. I'll be going through them myself today. So I'll be probably a little bit slow picking those out. Um, let's see. It was one I saw at the beginning I wanted to get to. Lots of side questions, though. Unfortunately, it's fatiguing me able to find them. Not sure why Palestine's coming up. <laughs> um, question about black hole spin. Um, do black hole spin, and, and can you flip them over? And I can't remember who had asked that, but that was the general gist of the question. You can flip a black hole over, same as you can flip over a top, but it takes a lot of effort. It's like trying to flip any spinny object. You've probably seen that trick with the bicycle wheel and gyros. They're very stable objects. You can flip them, but you have to exhort a lot of force and momentum. And the other thing is there's very few cases where you would want to do that. Um, you would probably alter its direction a little bit here or there to be aligned with whatever direction you're trying to do with it, because a lot of stuff we want to do with black holes is very dependent on which way the poles are, are facing. But there's no particular reason why you want to flip that. Now, as the question of how do you possibly spin a point-like object, we don't know. You know, that's we don't know if a black hole actually has a singularity in the bottom of it or not. As best as we can tell, now that we're starting to image these things, and it does seem to match with our theories, they certainly do have angular momentum and spin, and um, <clears throat> and that's predicted for them to have that. And so we do know they have them. Whether or not that says that they are not actually point-like objects is a little bit more debatable. Um, but they spin very quickly, very, very quickly. And a neutron star will spin insanely fast because they have all the angular momentum that star had collapsed to a very tiny point. Same as an ice skater, you know, when they put their arm out, they slow down. When they bring it in, they speed up. That same process is happening with black holes. They are very tiny. They are possibly point-like. Um, but again, I can't think of any particular reason why you want to change the direction of their spin. Um, <laughs> Albert Jackson asks, the SFI logo is an awesome one. Thank you. Who designed it and what program does he or she use when designing it? I actually don't know um, uh, what software Jacob uses, but our, our cover artist, Jacob Greigel, uh, who does some of our other graphics as well. But whenever you see one of the thumbnails, other than the big black ones with the logo that just say, you know, thumbnail pending or uh, live stream coming, the thumbnails for every episode, the cover art for that is done by Jacob Greigel. And he's actually the first uh, volunteer on the show in terms of the crew. And um, he makes all the weekly ones, though I do some of the covers for the bonus episodes because he's very busy and I don't like to pester him when I, I turn out an extra episode. Um, and uh, I can't thank Jacob enough for that. He did design the, the logo of the brand that we use for that. Um, I modified it just a little bit by putting the actual initials SFIA on there. I don't think the channel was actually called SFIA at the time he designed it. Um, if anyone's ever noticed, the channel is just called Isaac Arthur. And that's because it was my old Google account, same as anybody else's. And I used to upload random, you know... Uh, home videos and stuff like that to that. Don't go looking for them. I deleted them all, but uh, uh, it just kind of mutated into a channel and I've never wanted to change the uh, official name. They, they offer you the option of like a vanity URL if you get to a certain size on YouTube, but um, it removes all of your comments that you've ever posted when you change the name of the channel. Not everybody's comments, but yours. And that would remove every reply that I put on the show. And I do reply to a lot of the comments. And those are often explanations of, of you know, something there or uh, an error that was in the video. 
And to me, the Vanity URL or changing the uh, name of the show to SFIA or Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur instead of just Isaac Arthur it do- isn't worth removing You know those thousands of, of replies and comments I've made over the years. If they ever fix that, I'll probably get that changed. Um, Commander Corman asks, have you ever thought about doing a Stellaris playthrough? No, uh, it's a great game. It's obviously very popular, folks, though I don't play it too much myself. I'm a big Paradox Interactive fan, and I'm sure some of you have noticed we do use their music. Uh, Luca, uh, speaking of like folks who are up on the show, Jacob does the covers, and Luca DeRosa has been doing a lot of the soundtracks for the episodes of late. And um, he actually did contact Paradox Interactive uh, to see if we could use some of the music from Stellaris, and they had said yes. So, uh, And... Um, I think, uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to plug Paradox too much, but I, I do template a lot of games by them, so they make very good strategy games. Um, and I do love the soundtrack from Stellaris. So. <laughs> All right. Um, but no, I wouldn't do a game walkthrough. Um, and, uh, you know, that's its own niche. Stick to your own niche. And I know some folks do gaming and other shows too, but I wouldn't want to make live commentary while I was playing games because I would probably be cursing on a regular basis. Plus, I tend to play sandbox games anyway. Uh, you'll never see me in a multiplayer game for the most part. I, I just does not tend to be my thing. Um, next question. Sorry about that. It's taking a while for me to go through these today. Uh, by the way, happy birthday, Wisdom A1. Um, okay, Soldier of the Ark asks, with the new Barbavos coming out soon, I actually did not know that. Uh, with the new Barbavos book coming out soon about the search for Bendor, what is your theory as to what happened to him? Also, dang, you're looking good for a gun buddy. <laughs> A gun bunny, by the way, is a, a name for folks who are in artillery. And if anyone was curious, I'm sure I've mentioned I was in artillery when I was in the army. Um, I did not know a new Bob of Horse book was coming out, uh, which is kind of a, 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 a horrible oversight because I know Dennis. <laughs> I love his work, so I'm as excited as you are to hear a new one's coming out, um, which gives us another book of the month at some point. Um, and I actually can't remember which one Bendo is off the top of my head. For those who are not familiar with the series, the Bob of Horse series by Dennis E. Taylor, um, is about a uh, fellow who gets himself frozen and he gets resurrected as a, as an as an uploaded mind essentially, and uh, he makes a lot of copies of himself to help explore the galaxy and settle the galaxy. Uh, and after a while, it begins running out of names. Each of the copies has to have its own name, and some of them initially are things like you know Will Reichel and and other names that would be very associated with science fiction. By the time he's got a few hundred iterations, they're getting named things like Homer Simpson. And uh, Bender, of course, presumably in Futurama, but I'm afraid I can't remember that character at the moment. That is a great series, by the way. Um, I, I will also recommend the audiobook on that one because uh, the fellow who does that, Ray Porter, is just a, one, rapidly becoming one of my favorite narrators. Um, let's see. What is the best vegetable? Broccoli. I don't know. <laughs> uh, um, Question from Gorgly. He asks, how developed populated would an off-Earth colony need to be in order to keep going and continue human population growth and expansion to space if a disaster were to wipe out humans on Earth? That's always a tricky question on these because it also comes into play when we're discussing things like um, how big does a colony need to be before it starts sending off dotto colonies of its own. Uh, you know, you can send ships out at, say, 10% of life speed and, and rapidly colonize the whole galaxy in, in a million years. Obviously, a given uh, value of relatively fast. Um, but uh, the assumption is after a certain point, you know, you, you're going to leapfrog to some degree. Earth is going to keep sending out colony ships even after the first, you know, 100 or so light years have been colonized because it can still send ships uh, more easily than those dot or colonies can yet. And so your your colonization wave is never going to originate from the nearest planet to that empty system. It's always going to come from a ways back in where they've actually developed and expanded a lot. Um, when an interstellar colony, it almost has to be completely self-sufficient from day one. For an interplanetary colony like one on Mars or the moon, it does not. Um, and ideally, it would never be 100% independent. You, you want it to be robust and independent if it needs to be. But trade's a good thing. It keeps uh, keeps people interacting. If somebody wants to go and uh, set up their own isolationist colony, may by all means. But for the most part, our goal with colonization, I would say, is to set up things that are self-sufficient but not completely independent. And how much you need population-wise or development-wise is always going to be really based on technology. 
you know, we had a lot of colonies in the early Americas um, that, uh, or in the Pacific, that only had a couple other people starting off, and most of those did not fail fairly well, uh, fail fairly well until they got additional colonies or they had ones nearby, um, or at least were on some kind of trade route that necessitated people visiting them. But when you got stuff like three D printing or genetic engineering, you say you need a certain number of people just to, you know, not get all incestuous, inbred, and have third th- thumbs, um, but you. Don't actually need that if you got enough technology because you just edit out those problems or print some DNA from the archive or use frozen embryo and sperm from donors back on Earth and have a big bank of those you can draw on. The same applies for a lot of industrial things. You're almost always going to gain a benefit of scale when you're doing mass production um, versus 3D printing where you always put each individual customized object. Uh, and we don't know how much that's going to be. Good 3D printing may still not be as good as uh, economy of scale, but it might be more enough to let you be self-sufficient if, if Earth blew up, for instance, or got gray good. Um, it's worth noting, though, and, and we do have an episode coming out on that very shortly, um, Threats to Interplanetary Civilizations, or was that... Was that the, yeah, that is this week's episode coming out, isn't it? Um, and uh, one of the things we get as a drawback, from, uh, draw away from that is that... Um, the video on a lot of things can destroy a technological civilization that aren't going to splash over. You don't really get that disaster effect. You get a war on Earth, it's going to spill over onto Mars if it's that extreme of a war. Um, let's see. But it's a good question. I'm afraid there's not really going to be a good answer to that, though, because it's so dependent on technology. All right. Trubo Nate asks, Dark Matter is just the Aether hypothesis. Changed my mind. Dark Matter is came out actually not that long after uh, we'd blown a hole in Aether. Um, Zwicky uh, first noted it uh, fairly conclusively in the 1930s. Um, reasons for people doubting dark matter um, are honestly kind of thin at this point in time. Doubting any particular type of what it happens to be, yeah, until it's in a lab, that's that's fair enough. But you have missing mass, and uh, almost every alternative version people have produced has missing mass. We never proved ether didn't exist, incidentally. The Michelson-Morley experiments proved that we didn't need it, and we didn't have any way to detect it. So for all practical purposes, it may as well not exist. Uh, dark matter is a little bit different. We absolutely detect it. And people say, well, you can't see it. Well, big deal. You, we can't see almost a lot of things we look at. There's a zone of avoidance uh, between us and a lot of the universe because the center of our galaxy is in the way. We see effects from that stuff on everything else. The great attractor, dark flow, that's on the other side of the zone of avoidance. I can't see the inside of the sun. I can't see the inside of the earth. I believe that they are there, and I believe we can study their properties without actually having to drill a hole down. Um, now, that always leaves some uncertainties. You always want the most direct evidence you can get. But if we detect a planet that's got oxygen in its atmosphere, for instance, that's not conclusive proof of life, but it's a pretty strong indicator. And you start getting more and more things. You get testable and falsifiable um, experiments you can do. And we've done those for dark matter to see whether or not it's that or something else. With examples like the bullet cluster, that was to rule out what we call modified Newtonian dynamics. We saw that and we said, well, we got these two options, dark matter or modified Newtonian dynamics, that gravity gets considerably weaker at a distance, more than just all inverse all squared. And when we saw the bullet cluster, it did not fit modified Newtonian dynamics uh, mond. It did fit dark matter as a particle. Um, and similar things we look at its formation in the early universe start to rule out a lot of these things. So the big difference with Aether is we were just assuming that light needed some kind of medium to travel through because every other wave we'd encountered, you know, sound waves, water waves, etc., had a medium they traveled through. Uh, so we just concluded, well, presumably light has one too, and we called it Aether. Uh, we later found out from the Michaels and Morley experiments that that wasn't necessary for that model. And uh, we had no evidence for it. We simply, again, assumed it presumably existed because waves always seem to go through a medium. So there's a really big difference between dark matter and ether. And uh, I mean, obviously, I can't sway anybody on that topic, but dark matter is about as solid as you can get as a concept now. Uh, What the individual particles are, they're probably slow moving. They're probably fairly massive. Uh, They are not going to be black holes or things like that unless Hawking radiation is wrong. Um, but as to whether or not it exists, yeah, I don't think there's a lot of room for argument on that anymore. Um, but someone might change my mind. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, the Allegiant Trader asks, is there an alternative for concrete and core for alien civilizations with different younger geology than Earth? Yes and no. Um, first, if they are carbon-based, and that's probably, you know, we can't really talk about situations where they wouldn't be carbon-based at the moment. But they are carbon-based. Odds are they are going to be on a planet that has a lot of coal and oil on it. Um, 
you just have that big buildup of life dying off as uh, as a species evolved towards intelligence. And you'd expect that to leave coal and oil behind. Uh, however, um, this the fossil fuels have been a great benefit to us in the last century, regardless of the other downsides. The impression that they are the only thing that we can walk off of is just wrong. It, it doesn't make much logical sense. Um, ethanol, not one of the best fuels for cars to be, to be fail, is alcohol. We invented that quite a long time before we discovered fossil fuels, or at least started using fossil fuels. Um, solar panels, we were beginning to develop basic photovoltaics about the same time the car was coming into play. We had already gotten the engine pretty well designed and those fossil fuels were quite handy. We also have wood burning ones. Um, they were actually very popular in a lot of the countries uh, for a while, wood gas stoves and wood gas um, cars when they were concerned about oil embargoes uh, middle of the last 20th century. Um, <clears throat> these things work fine, though in those cases they require you to build them and to uh, and to use that land for that purpose. Um, same for biofuels, you have to, to give over land for that as opposed to farming or native ecology. Um, solar panels, we'd probably have developed them a lot faster if we'd gotten the electricity going with Edison, but the car hadn't taken off or engines hadn't taken off. Uh, nuclear power started getting discovered very soon thereafter too, and uh, that will cover all your electricity and we do not make batteries. So is it beneficial to have fossil fuels uh, to, to speed up your uh, development? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it helps your economy out. That's going to help your research uh, because you've got so much more resource and infrastructure to, to be able to spend on things like research and development. Uh, is it necessary? No. Uh, there's an implied timer on civilizations using fossil fuels that they're going to run out of this fuel or wreck the ecology uh, in the process of using it. And when you have that implied timer, then you do need to get this stuff done a certain amount of time. If you're using something like ethanol or nuclear or solar, these are kind of eternal power supplies to some degree. Yeah, you can run out of uh, fissile materials, but there's quite a lot of them out there, especially now we have new proxy methods. Um, and so there's no timer, there's no uh, running out of it or ecological wreckage to worry about. So if it takes an extra few centuries to develop um, because you're using these instead of getting the big boost from fossil fuels, then does it matter? I mean, you you don't have a timer on you. You know, uh, it took us thousands of years to go from basic pottery to uh, to use of steel. You know, it took if it had taken an extra few centuries, we wouldn't be around right now. But uh, you know, something else would be, and it would be a few centuries delayed. And a few centuries is just nothing on these kind of timelines, and is only really relevant if you have that kind of built-in timer on your civilization where you're going to run out of this thing. Um, so if you didn't have it in the first place, that time was not even in play. Um, Let's see. Thank you, Andrew. Um, Matt Campbell asks, what is your favorite dinosaur? Hi, Matt. Um, I will go with the T-Rex just because I think they're particularly cool. Uh, I was actually with the tie-on. I was thinking, somebody says, but you don't ride horses much. I know I don't really like to ride horses. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think of myself as a rural person because uh, it's at least half a mile to get the nearest horse ranch from where I'm at. I live in a village, very, very populous and dense, all 1,200 of us. Um, but, uh, so I'm not going to ride a, I'm not going to try to bring a horse around. I don't really like to wear hats, but I could ride a dinosaur. So if they, uh, if they get dinosaurs in play, I could wear them and I would feel okay wearing my bolo tie. So, <laughs> um, but I, uh, yeah, T-Rex, um, Castro asks, what traits that humans have do you think are unique or rare among all plausible life in the universe? For all plausible life, uh, without uh, the implied vital that's intelligent life, I would say abstract uh, thought, communication capability. You know, we talk about animals talking to each other, and they, they do communicate, but they do not have a, a language. You know, there's an inbuilt thing of instinctual body language combined with a little bit of localized learning between that one and anyone who's been around for a long time. Um, we have abstract concept in rationalizing. There are 7 billion of us with this tail, 7.6 billion of us with this, and maybe 100 billion before us who have had that trade. And that is less than there are a number of stars in this galaxy alone. So it's a pretty rare trait. Um, for life in general, though, we have this problem. Um, we follow the mediocrity principle, the Copernican principle most of the time in science. And we were talking about that with our collaboration with Jade uh, last weekend. Uh, that you have the alternative, the anthropic principle, but under mediocrity, under Copernican principle, you uh, assume that you're normal. So we can't really assume any trait of humans is abnormal for other intelligent civilizations. But it could be that it is really abnormal. And humans are the only abstract conce uh, concept uh, thinking group amongst our various species, many of whom have very large brains. 
Uh, and many of them have had those large brains, at least as long as we've had ours. You know, elephants, raccoons, dolphins, these did not pop up uh, just a million years ago. Um, and uh, that being about when we started getting these uh, these alterations to our brain a million, two million years ago, whatever it was, and, and ongoing since then. Um, so we don't know that, you know, that's a mediocre thing, that that's a normal outcome of evolution, even of creatures that have relatively large brains. And, uh, I think though that we do have to assume that those are relatively mediocre for advanced civilizations because they do need that curiosity, that conceptualizing. And I would not expect curiosity or socialization to be abnormal, uh, traits develop in evolution, certainly not for technologically advanced civilizations. It'd be kind of hard to get it otherwise, but... I suspect we will find out humanity is fairly unique compared to other intelligent species if we meet any, but uh, in what ways, it's hard to say. You know, you look at uh, a list of mediocre examples of things, of planets, almost everyone's going to have some relatively unique trait, same as with people. Uh, I don't think of myself as normal, I'm a unique person, uh, but I treat myself as mediocre in any given trait until I've met a bunch of other people who have that trait to some degree or another and see how do I average out against them. And we kind of have to do that in the sciences. Uh, unless you want to follow the anthropic principle, which is a lot harder to test, obviously, though not necessarily less valid. It's a way of guessing when we don't know much. Um, Cody Mary Hansen asks, is it possible that we are creating dark matter by the amount of information we are producing, making the universe event horizon artificially larger, storing on the event horizon? No, I, I would actually guess you probably think about dark energy there because that has been proposed as that it might be some kind of entropic effect of the universe. Problem with dark matter is that we can look back at the early universe and we can see the dark matter in play. We can't see it in its direct sense. We see it gravity pulling on those objects. But we can look back at the various stages of the universe of different ages and we do not see an increase in dark matter. It's been there in the same amount since the beginning of the universe. Uh, <clears throat> so it would not be a byproduct of any aspect of the age of the universe. Uh, dark energy, on the other hand, is something that's been increasing over time, and that could in some way be tied into, you know, the, the process of entropy or expansion in this universe. I mean, obviously it is tied into expansion, but we don't know how yet, and you've got to be really careful to speculate on things like that. Hopefully we'll know more about dark energy in the near future, but, you know, near future might be a couple of centuries for all we know. It's a new problem. I remember when I was a senior in college going to a colloquium where other people was first suggesting that. And uh, I wish I paid more attention uh, <laughs> to quite a few of the colloquiums I went to in my senior year. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Hydrogen cyanide asks, how plausible is an O'Neill cylinder within this century? Um, I, I should probably point out that when we talk about O'Neill cylinders on the show, we're almost always talking about the biggest ones he suggested, the Island 3 or 4. Um and uh, all ones even bigger than that that are not constructed out of steel. Um, you know, with titanium or Kevlar, you can make them even wider. Um, some of the O'Neill cylinders are actually quite on the small side. And, uh, you know, not that much bigger than the Gateway uh, space station we had talked about back in spaceports. And um, I do think that we will see a, a rotating space station. Uh, it, you know, I would feel like before the end of the century, we're going to try to ke- create something at least on par with... Uh, Brian Vosti's Kaplana 1 uh, that you've seen on the show quite a lot because Brian's loaned us the uh, clips for that. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and uh, that's not all that big of a place, it, but it's probably about as big as we could expect to build in this century. It all depends, though, on, on how much you're pushing forward or things. We don't just build these things because they're expensive, so that we have to find a way to make them cheaper, which means resourcing sourcing the material from space or from the moon. And we have to actually have a reason to build something like that. You have to have a lot of throughput in space. Uh, so I would like to think we'll have a rotating habitat, of a rotating space station, sometime in the next couple of decades. But an actual thing that would qualify as a habitat or a permanent living space, as opposed to like a hotel or a park, we might not actually get this one this century, even if we have the tech to do it relatively cheaply, just because there has to be a demand. And uh, there might not be. Um Stand for Liberty Ass, and th- thank you, by the way. Uh, could dark energy be the entropy of the universe writ large? Quite possibly. I mean, as I was saying a moment ago, that is one of those ones we have a lot of question marks about. And uh, I said earlier that dark matter is uh, one of those things there's really not a lot of question about its existence anymore, but uh, there's a lot more room for discussion on dark energy. Um, and I-, I do want to point this out, and we did this in the uh, d- uh, the dark trilogy that covered dark matter, dark energy, and, and dark flow a few years back. Um the term dark in physics frequently just means we can't see it. 
uh, like dark side of the moon. We can't see the dark side of the moon. It doesn't technically get as much light as the, quote, visible side of the moon because it doesn't get reflection of light off Earth, which is pretty significant. Uh, the full moon on Earth is very dim compared to the to the uh, the sun, but uh, it is still fairly lit and the Earth is a good deal brighter. But the dark side of the moon is the side of the moon that we can't see. It gets plenty of light. Uh, dark matter, dark energy, dark flow. These are things that we haven't really seen too much. They're not really related beyond the name dark. Um, the fact that dark energy is the supermajority of energy in the universe and dark matter is the supermajority of matter in the universe can be viewed as semi-coincidental. They're not assumed to have any relation to each other. They might, but the only real relation is there's a lot of them and we don't know what they are very clearly yet. Um, I mean... You'd really have to ask a cosmologist for a legitimate answer on this. I don't really want to speculate much, but I, I do tend to feel like there would be a connection with entropy and dark energy. Um, but uh, that's just kind of a semi-educated hunch. You know, we just don't know enough yet. Um, <clears throat> David Angle asks, question, during the first phases of construction of an orbital ring uh, around an object with a magnetic field, does the conductor need to be charged or will it uh, acquire a current by its orbital motion? You could do that. Um, I mean, all you have to do... So, an orbital ring is not being held up by charge. The sheath around it is being kept apart and you're keeping the thing spinning inside that clearly by using magnetic so it doesn't scrape along the outside. You don't want friction inside something like that. You know, when you're doing this with like a... Uh, a uh, a hose. If you hooked up a hose to a pipe and uh, turned it on in a circle, it would get firm and stiff as all that water flowed through. But that's doing that at you know meters per second, not uh, kilometers per second. Um, so you want to use magnetics to keep it in in line. But uh, yeah, if you take a big long hoop of metal uh, as your you know core of that and spin it around, it's going to have plenty of magnetic field just from that motion. But it is the actual angle, angular momentum of that that's holding things up, not the uh, not the magnetic field. The magnetic field is just helping the sheath not kind of crash into it without having to touch it with something. Uh, let's go ahead and go to break real quick, and we'll be back with some more questions in about three, four minutes. So we'll be on break for a few minutes while I refill my coffee. If you want to get up and grab yourself a drink and a snack, maybe a slice of pie, and get some more questions in for our second half. But while we're doing that, I wanted to introduce everyone to a couple more of the folks who helped make SFIA great, and I thought we'd start with Evan, one of our script editors who also helps moderate our Discord server, and is one of the folks who helps on the livestream chat too. Hey all, my name's Evan Schulteis, I'm a degreed chemist and I'm one of the members of the production team here at SFIA. I'm mostly involved in our discussion meetings and editing, where I advise on nanomaterials like graphene and on energy. I'm also a published historian, and looking to the past often comes in handy when discussing future societies here at SFIA. I also have a book entitled The Battle of the Catalanian Fields, AD 451, which is about Attila the Hun and the final years of the Western Roman Empire. Anyways, it's really great to be a part in science communication like this, and I'm glad you all come here to discuss and learn. Thanks for watching and supporting all of us here at SFIA, and we'll see you on our Thursday. There's a joke on the channel that SFIA actually stands for Science Fiction Ideas for Authors, and there's more than a little truth to that. And I have to say one of the cool parts of running the show is getting to meet so many authors, and many of them lend their skills to help me on the scripts, like Evan or Jerry, who I'm pleased to introduce you to today. Hi everybody, I'm Jerry Gurn, one of the channel uh, script editors, uh, more recently a script co-writer. Uh, a few months ago I submitted to Isaac a uh, first draft that the team expanded and reworked and split into the Void Ecology episode and parts of the uh, Space Whales and Bioships episode. And uh, as Isaac mentioned on the Void Ecology video, I also wrote a companion piece, a short story called Momentum, about uh, creatures that live in the ring of a uh, mega Saturn type planet and the creatures they share that environment with and the perils that they face there. And then um, Isaac convinced me to uh, record Momentum and uh, post it on YouTube. So to my surprise, I now have a YouTube channel, Jerry's Stories. And uh, I want to thank everybody who already checked out uh, Momentum. Um, it's not very often that you um, work really hard on something and then you get to spend a day reading hundreds of people effuse about uh, you know how good it came out and how much they enjoyed it. So uh, really appreciate that. That was a, a delightful day. Um, 
So my channel is Jerry's Stories. If you would rather um, uh, read than listen, um, you can look at my name on Amazon and you'll find uh, Purple Dreams, the anthology in which uh, Momentum appears, and also my medieval uh, horror fantasy novel, No Moon to Pray To, which uh, you'll also enjoy. And um, thanks again to everybody, especially Isaac, and uh, back to Isaac. Thanks, Jerry, and thank you Evan and everybody else on the team who sacrifices their free time to help make this show great. That includes all of our four mods and admins too, many of whom are taking out time this Sunday afternoon to help moderate our chat here and relay me questions folks are asking. So for their sake, please try to keep polite and respectful in the chat, and try to keep the questions in a clean, easy format so they don't need to reformat or type them before relaying them to me. I should note too, they are much more likely to pass a question on to me if they don't have to work hard to do it. And now, back to- Okay, and we're back. Uh, next question from Jared Klatt. So the K level of civilizations are immense in their scope. What's the likelihood of us getting to K1 before some sort of extinction event happening? Um, just going over what K means in this case. Uh, K, K1, K2, K3, Kardashev scale, most of you guys are already familiar with that, but if you're new, the Kardashev scale was proposed by a fellow named Kardashev, uh, and it was kind of looking at how you'd locate civilizations um, astronomically. So K1 is when you're using all the energy that would hit a planet. K2 is when you're using all the energy up of a star. And K3 is when you're using all the energy of a galaxy. And um, these are not good measurements for civilizations, nor is there a K4 or K5. Uh, actually, on our Facebook forum, we have a long-standing ban on discussing K4 or K5 civilizations just because people kept using it as kind of a, you know, what would you do if you were K10? Um Although I would usually treat a K4 as being either a colonized entire supercluster or colonize the entire absorbable universe, their Hubble volume anyway. Um, <clears throat> the thing about a K1 civilization is you could actually make the argument that we're pretty much one right now because we, we only generate a very tiny fraction of that as electrical power that we use, but we get to all of our crops, all of our uh, you know nutrients and things like that from the full ecology of the planet. And of course, you could argue that our civilization then has pretty much always been K1, so it gets a bit debatable. Uh, the thing about a K1 civilization when you're using it is how much power they get, which is about uh, two times 10 to the 17th watts of power. Don't quote me on that. Uh, the equivalent of about, what would that be? 200 million billion watts. Um, you have uh, a lot of power there compared to what we have now, which is only in like the terawatt region. And you can get a lot of stuff done like that. It's assumed that you've had these, all these industries that are running on that, that you have all these uh, spaceships and other things that are running on that. And it starts to get really hard to actually have uh, a disaster of the kind that folks are thinking of at that point. Uh, just because if you are a K1, a fully colonized planet like that, an Ecumenopolis, we sometimes call that, you're not that in a vacuum. You've got a big swarm of planets. The moon is fully colonized at that point in time. So are most of the other planets of the solar system. Um, you're going to have thousands of asteroid bases. So once you've actually gotten to K1 state, you, you're pretty much done. Same for, I mean, in terms of being threatened in a sort of natural disaster way, kind of the same thing applies for K2s. You can build a Dyson Swarm a lot faster than, than they tend to be shown in fiction, where it's like after you've colonized endless millions of worlds and have a galactic empire, now you get around doing a Dyson Sphere. In point of fact, you're probably going to have a Dyson Swarm fully developed inside of four or 5,000 years uh, AD tops, I would tend to think. Um, and by then you would have colonies though around almost everything within a few hundred light years because just when you start getting access to that kind of power and you can access that power in a Dyson Swarm a lot easier than building habitats because all you have to do is make really tiny solar panels, thin things or mirrors and that's more enough to push spaceships up to interstellar speeds. Um, it's slowing them back down is a little bit harder but uh, see our episode on uh, Exodus fleets in the Generation Ship series for details. But uh, you don't have a K1 by itself or a K2 by itself or a K3 by itself before you fully colonized your galaxy in total dicing, you've probably launched your Andromeda or other places too. Um, so again, Carter Show scale is mostly about being able to spot these things. As to a disaster hitting a K1, I mean, it would almost have to be a, a artificial one. And again, that's that's the topic of uh, this week's episode, uh, Threats to Interplanetary uh, Civilizations, Interstellar Civilizations. Um, uh, Grawa asks, will you do an episode on strange materials like you said in the episode Metamaterials? Yes, because exotic materials is actually one of the things that want to pull and I've been meeting around to do that episode for a while. Um, 
and uh the delay on that has been more sometimes with episodes we've been planning to do them for a long time but i'm never sure if i want to do them as one episode or multiple episodes and then how to break them up uh quite a lot of times when i started writing up an episode it actually turns into a series the uh black hole uh trilogy we did recently which is actually a uh, quartet because uh fleet of stars is kind of part of that too that was going to be just one episode colonizing black holes but it seemed like we needed to redo the black hole spaceship materials a little bit and it seemed like we should talk about you know many other aspects so instead of being one episode uh that would have been like two hours long it became basically four episodes same question when folks ask me why we don't do any more like 70 minute videos although we've only done two like that in the first place the uh, foamy paradox compendium and its predecessor foamy paradox solutions doing really long episodes like that besides the fact that kind of bones you out a little bit if you're trying to do these things on a weekly basis it's almost always better to split into two so typically when an episode starts getting to be like 35 40 minutes long in, the, in terms of what the script looks like that's when i start thinking about breaking it up into another episode um because there's almost always more to talk about um mark zimmerman asks what is the best estimate of how long it would take to terraform venus about well that actually <laughs> we were brainstorming that topic uh, yesterday for our winter on venus one of our episodes for end of september early october so i'll be writing that episode later this week um <clears throat> using the birch method for solar sails in front of uh, venus to cool down by itself that takes a couple of centuries to get it cooled down at that point in time then you begin your terraforming walk and how long it takes to terraform things uh we'll look at that in springtime on mars uh but you're almost always going to be looking at many centuries you can only do it so fast even with something like nanotechnology and universal assemblers because if you try to do it much faster and those will let you do it a lot faster but uh you have to get power down to them they produce waste heat uh you know they they are going to melt that planet if you try to do it too fast you're never going to drop a uh, gray goo on a planet and turn it into uh you know a nice green ball that everyone can live on with forests and trees in in minutes or days it's going to take you decades even then uh at the best case scenario otherwise the amount of heat being used is going to melt that planet uh, at least whatever you're trying to build there including your robots um uh Gunmundo Ingi, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, Gunmundo Igor Gunmundsen asks, "How much potential energy is in our galactic cluster? Later, be our only visible universe if all the mass would drop into a single black hole in the middle." Um, I would have to actually sit down and work out how many joules that was uh, or kilograms, but uh, there's around a trillion solar masses in our galaxy, and I think that the cluster itself has less than ten times that. So loose figure 10 trillion uh solar masses um and uh i guess it's 10 to th- is it 10 to 30 two times 10 to 30 kilograms so 10 to the f- 10 to the 39 10 to 37 10 to th- about 10 to the 50 joules plus or minus an order of magnitude um but in black hole wise because that uh that event horizon is linear to mass uh if it's got 10 trillion times the mass of the sun which would normally be about three kilometers in diameter for the black hole uh i think that's about that then it would be 10 trillion times that 30 trillion kilometers which uh, i believe would be what that would be three light years in diameter it, somebody would have to want to check that so don't quote me on that one um <clears throat> let's see next question john uh, joe dunn asks what are the chances that we live in a simulation a la the matrix or similar i feel it will certainly be i feel it will be entirely impossible or 100 so 100 certain hmm uh, our odds of living in a simulation i always quote as being 33 percent uh and there's a very simple reason i always say 33 percent uh, i think we discussed that recently in the anthropic principle uh the principle of indifference tells us that when we have plausible options it's like the mediocrity principle it's one of these things you use when you really don't know much if you know what your plausible options are but you don't really know how they relate to each other like i know many people like coke and many people like pepsi so i'm going to assume it's 50 50 until i have evidence to indicate otherwise um you've got three options for simulation either one you just can't do it either they die off or, or it, it it's just turns out to be impossible to simulate people that accurately that's option one um option two is that you can do it and but you really don't like to simulate people much and option three is that you do it and and you can do it and you do it all the time so each of those is basically a 33 percent option and then a little bit off the top on that one because even if you're simulating millions of universes there is still one real one and you have a chance of being in that so just a little under a third um 
but then again, you have to ask, how realistic is that? And I'd say for the first one, uh, I don't think that it's very plausible anymore to say that you can't simulate a universe. I don't think we go, or simulate a world anyway, simulate a human mind, because technically a simulation hypothesis only requires that you simulate one human mind, and realistically enough, uh, in the surroundings that they believe it's real. Um, <clears throat> but I do believe that's technically feasible, and uh, I can't imagine a particular reason why we go extinct before that. Uh, although the the alternative on that would be that uh, you go in that second one, you can do it, but you don't particularly want to. You know, if Skynet takes to the world, he can do the simulation, but he has no motivation to simulate us as an ancestor simulation. And But you have other ones too. Uh, when we looked at that in, I want to say, reality and simulation, the post-scarcity uh, series, one of the things we point out is that most of your reasons for simulating people don't really hold up to inspection because there's always an energy cost and a heat cost to getting rid of that energy. And I don't need extreme realism for a, a fantasy simulation or historical simulation or even modeling things for data and research. You don't really need to simulate an entire planet with that degree of accuracy. Reasons why you kind of might is if you're, you're, you know, you're a high-tech civilization and all your kids are being born to a post-scarcity universe and they're you know, trying, turning into lazy trolls. So you instead raise them in a, uh, you know, a relatively advanced period but not one so advanced uh, from the past that they would just assume they were in a simulation. And that, to me, you know, I feel like that second category that you have the ability to do it, but you really don't do it much, is probably going to turn out to be the most likely one. I do not think we're in a simulation, but as I point out to people, the bigger question is not, are we in a simulation, but does it actually matter? You know, we've always assumed that there are higher levels of reality in all moon mythologies throughout history, and it didn't make us less real in this one. Um, let's see. <clears throat> Next question. Oh, <laughs> Dysentery Joe asks, you guys have the strangest names. I, I know I've pointed that out before, but uh, question, Isaac, big fan of the channel. What MOS were you? Former 95 Bravo, 31 Bravo here. And uh, I'm going to have to apologize. I don't actually remember what 31 Bravo is. I'm thinking comms, but I don't think that's it. MOS or uh, Military Occupation School? I, I can't remember what the S is for. Anyway, it's your job in the military, and there's a whole bunch of those. Mine was 13 Bravo. I was a sergeant uh, with uh, Bravo 23FA, and then uh, that was my main unit. Obviously, you could switch around over the times. Um, and, uh, and that was in Geese in Germany, by the way, that we were mostly stationed out of, uh, other than our deployment to Iraq, for 14 months. Um, Giessen's a great place, but it's a little bit north of Frankfurt. Um but uh, 13 Bravo, and that is artillery, uh, although I, I actually spent a lot more of our time doing, I would hate to say, uh, we did a lot of infantry work by over there because you don't really need uh, very large cannons when you're occupying a country. And uh, they found out that I was decent at paperwork and computer stuff, so I tend to end up doing a lot of our admin work too, <laughs> as well as a lot of our training and technical stuff on uh, all of our equipment. Uh, when, the, uh, when the war got started, or wars if you would, um, there was a lot of new equipment. We were calling it RFI, Rapid Field Issue. Uh, new equipment that had been designed but really hadn't been uh, you know, thoroughly tested and trained on. And so uh, you know, it had been tested, but not really for enough spectrum to rapidly train people in. And I usually got stuck both for my own company, we call them batteries and artillery, but company and, and a lot of the other folks in all battalions and the others helping out the training of uh, a lot of that equipment because it was kind of new and technical. Um, and uh, so, but the actual MOS was 13 Bravo. Um, let's see. Next question. <laughs> Starbucky asks, Isaac, are you an Orthlean, Martian, or Beltor, and are you looking forward to the next season of The Expanse? I am looking forward to, uh, I, I was very happy to hear that The Expanse had been uncancelled and that Amazon had picked it up, and uh, yeah, it's a great show. The book series is pretty good too. Uh, I mean, well, the book series is quite good. I've been trying not to read ahead of it though, because with uh, like Game of Thrones, I found that uh, it was more fun to be startled. I actually liked the last few seasons of Game of Thrones, even though a lot of folks felt they had kind of gone downhill, uh, to which I agree in some ways, but because I had not already read the books, it was a bit of a surprise to me. And um, even with The Expanse, they've started uh, uh, divorging a bit from the TV show, um, uh, from the book show, almost right from the get-go. Um, but uh, I don't want to read ahead now because I'm sure they're going to borrow some more material from it. But um, I'd say in terms of factions I tend to favor, I actually think they're almost all really stupid, uh, especially in the TV show in terms of the factions. Orth should not be, um, you know... Uh, Earth has a population like 30 billion there and it's shown as being a bit of a dystopia. That doesn't make sense to me when you have spaceships going around. Um, the same thing with like the belt, they're low on water. There's no reason to ever be low on water when you have fusion power. It's it's kind of an absurdity. 
especially the way we see them using it when they run from point A to point B with the engines on full power. <clears throat> and that comes up, I mean, a lot of good fictions like that. If you look at uh, Frank Herbert's Dune, they have cheap interstellar space travel and levitation capability with their uh, suspensor fields. There is no reason why they haven't mined out you know, ice asteroids from further out in the solar system and brought them back onto Dune. Uh, and I'm aware that in later books in Dune, they uh, have a creature called a, sound a sand trout that uh, encompasses, uh, encapsulates that water but uh, to hide it from everybody. But uh, plot holes in, in terms of science for science fiction are nothing new. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad series, though. There's too many of those could be problematic. But... Um, I think the Martians, though, I maybe like them a little bit better because uh, they, you know, they seem to be more motivated to get stuff done. <laughs> so, um, hmm. Thank you, Congo Red. Um, let's see. Question from Emron: Do you think NASA or SpaceX will land people forced on the moon? Uh, NASA uh, landed people on the moon 50 years ago uh, last week, so I would say they, they won. <laughs> but uh, and they, they've got a bit of a head start. They've done it six times. If the question is, when will NASA next land people on the moon, or will it be SpaceX? That's kind of hard to say. Um, I, I think if SpaceX starts having a mission really in place that looks like it could do something on the moon, it's going to have at least one country who wants to tag along for that. It might be NASA. It might be, you know, the EU, the ESA might do it, uh, OASA, um, maybe Japan, who knows, China. Uh, there's so many options there. But I, I would not imagine the first trip back to the moon will be a commercial one just because it's so much preferable to get that big check from one of the governments uh, to let them bring their own astronauts and crew along instead. Because <laughs> so, it's not likely to be a profitable mission initially you know but uh, uh we actually had a survey on that on the facebook forum um about uh when should we next go back to the moon and i was pleasantly surprised that most people did select one of the options said we shouldn't bother going back with a manned mission until we're ready to set up a permanent base or ready to do industrial usages of it until there's actually another point not just to plant a flag and uh, collect some rocks uh, although those rocks were actually very handy um let's see I always feel like it's mean to say that they just went up there to collect rocks. Uh, you know, it's it's part of science is, you know, uh, grabbing samples. So, um, let's see. Just scroll back up to find some more questions. Igor asks a uh, question, how do we move continents? Um, we did talk about that a little bit in the Matrioska Worlds episode. Um, when you're trying to actually move a continent, uh, obviously this is extreme engineering. You've got to, you're trying to cut into something that's really quite deep, uh, that's already floating on a thing of me uh, molten metal at, uh, you know, at high, high, high pressures. So what you'd probably do if you actually wanted to move a continent up, if you're just trying to lift it up, is just kind of dig down in there, create a, a layer or a net and a mesh underneath it, and then lift. And you could actually do that with a very, a very large pair of orbital rings, just kind of lift it up there. Um, I don't even like to think about how thick those tethers would have to be, even if they were made of super materials like graphene. Uh, but that is possible. The other one, though, of course, if you wanted to transplant an entire continent or an island into a space habitat that's doing rotational spin, that is a lot trickier. And I'm not sure if you can actually do that without breaking gravity for at least a couple of uh, minutes as you're doing something like that. But uh, you'd basically you'd lift it up and then you begin to accelerate it on a spiral away from Earth so that gravity was dropping. And at some point you had to flip that thing over and get it spinning on its own. Um, and... Uh, hmm. That actually might be an interesting topic to do one day. But I think we did talk about that in Evacuation Earth a bit too. Let's see. Um, who's asked that question? So normally I have these coming in from Discord and the live cheat chat uh, thing which I'm using today. It kind of jumps around on me when looking at these. Somebody asked about simulations producing heat or rather do the uh, simulators even have to worry about heat? And in an ancestor simulation, yes they do. Um... When you're running computers, they are going to produce heat as a byproduct, and you have to get rid of that heat. So you also have to power them. You have to get, you know, find that power and get rid of the heat from it and radiate it away. And that's going to limit how sophisticated a simulation you can do even if you have all the power and energy and, and materials and computer chips you want. Uh, so you, you know, that's always a limitation on you, and you're never going to get fancier than you have to for your purpose. Um, in a simulation, you do not have the same physical laws necessarily as you do in the simulating universe. Um, you know, like old Nintendo games where you can walk off one side of the screen and pop back up on the other side, right? That's a, that's a circular universe, if you would. Um, 
in an ancestor simulation, though, which is what the simulation hypothesis is specifically about, it's not whether or not we live in a simulation, it's about whether we live in an ancestor simulation, a previous incarnation of that simulation that's been, you know, uh, either is exactly identical to how it happened in history, or is pretty close to it. In those, you're not going to have big physical lock changes. Um, you can do a simulation of a universe where there's uh, no entry, for instance. We could do something like that. Um, <clears throat> Uh, or we could do one way, or you only had two dimensions, for instance, or four dimensions. Um, but it wouldn't be an ancestor simulation. You're not going to have anything like, if you're trying to simulate your own past for whatever reason, or something very close to your own past, you can't go changing around physical laws all that much. Things are going to really screw up in, in your uh, simulation. So for the simulation hypothesis specifically, uh, because it is ancestor simulations, there would be entropy in play in the simulating universe. Um, and keep in mind that is one of the basis for why it's assumed that you're much uh, more likely to be in a fake simulation uh, in the simulation hypothesis is the idea that you are basically colonizing uh, by creating simulations. You create millions and millions and millions of simulations and there's so many of them that you're more likely to be in one of those in the real world. If you're just running a physical simulation of how things work at the speed of lights 10% higher or lower in a simulation, then uh, why are you making a billion of them? You know, that's not going to really make sense. So you don't have that huge pool of probability that you're in a fake one. Uh, no, no, ask, is Isaac from Wyoming? No, I'm from Ohio. Uh, I'm still wearing a bolo tie. <laughs> Although I was actually born in California. Um, let's see. We've got time for a couple more questions before we finish out for the day. So let me see if I can find a good one. Uh, uh, Abu Diogeny asks, in the Space Wars episode, you often reference how our descendants might create it. Often you express life extension. Why did you choose to say you would be you you would do this after our generation. I'm not sure I understand that question, unfortunately. Um, with life extension, as well as bioengineering, it's, it's a point that Arby de Grey makes a lot um, that I, I'm quite fond of repeating. Um, all medicine is life extension technology. And um, I would generally tend to breed that all ag uh, say that all agricultural, all livestock breeding is also genetic manipulation and uh, genetic engineering. It's just, you know, done with less skill. Um, and uh, I think that one of the reasons why you would tend to want to do things like the space whale, and obviously for a little bit of value of space whale, the, one of the reasons why you're doing that is that uh, when you're creating ecosystems, uh, when you're creating really complex systems, one way or another it's going to act in an organic fashion. Uh, and it's not very commonly mentioned, but I think we did bring it up in Cyborgs, uh, the episode Cyborgs, is that the term cybernetics actually has to do with the inner workings of dynamic systems. It has nothing to do with robots specifically. Um, and uh, with any of these systems we start creating them, whether you're keeping the machines or AI or bioengineered things or whichever it is, these are effectively going to become uh, an ecosystem. And so it's not so much saying how we're going to do it, that we're going to create carbon-based life in space. It's more the acknowledgement that after a long enough period of time of these things growing in complexity, scope and usage and hanging around for many centuries, you're going to have an ecosystem that develops. All right, let's find one last question. Uh, Ryan Baker asks, how far away are we as a species from mind uploading and how do you think it will be received at first? Um, I don't think we're actually all that far away from mind uploading. Uh, it's not something I expect in this generation though. The trick is that mind uploading is not actually as useful for most people as you tend to think. Uh, most of us do not really want to make an extra copy of ourselves that's going to hang you around. Uh, and we don't really have any particular desire to be a copy that gets burned out. You're going to stick, most people will stick in their own body as long as we can. And generally that level of technology and accuracy and resolution is going to let you do that. Where it's most likely to come up with uh, early mind uploading besides basic experimentation with it and is going to be probably two forms. Uh, the first would be trying to bring back folks who had been uh, frozen uh, or severely damaged and that, that body was no longer an option. Like right now we can freeze people, but we can't resurrect them, but we could scan their brain. Uh, again, that's kind of a story concept for the uh, Barbivore series by Dennis e. Taylor we mentioned earlier that I guess has a new book coming out. Um, the other purpose for mind uploading is really more to like get backup of your own mind. Um, and you can use it for all the other things we discussed, but backup seems like the most likely one. And not because you really th see that as a real immortality for yourself, but it's somebody who's going to take over raising your kids or running your business for you if something happens. So it's kind of an insurance policy. Um, and of course you can use it for all those other things, but for the resource to happen, uh, you need a lot of examples, a lot of cases, a lot of funding going into it, a lot of usage. And I'm not seeing a big push for that uh, as, as something people are going to want to do an awful lot. 
So we could actually have it go fairly slowly, even if the technology is there, just because it's not really attracting a lot of interest. The same reason, in some ways, space has been slowed down for us. We've had the capacity to build a moon base since the, the moon landings, really. Uh, but there hasn't been much of a point to doing it. So we, you know, we've been slowed down doing it. You wait until the time's right. And so how often you use something is a big factor of that. Like Moore's Law, um, computers getting faster and faster. One of the biggest reasons for that is because they're so useful, so immediately useful. So there's a constant expansion of the market to more and more sectors. You know, when I was a kid, very few people owned a PC and they were pretty much brand new things. Um, now everybody has computers all over the place. And that's, that creates that bit of that exponential curve about, you know, the, uh, that Moore's Law is about um, because the increased usage of it, the increased desire and profitability of it is what is driving exponential increases in how much research and how many researchers go into that field. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I tend to dislike a lot of the growth laws that we see like Moore's Law uh, is because they are seen in effect, but they're, they are the correlation, not causation. They're not explaining why it is. And in science, noticing a trend is not the same as explaining what that trend is caused by. And um, yeah, so I, I think mind uploading is something we're going to research in the next few decades. Uh, I don't know that it's going to be all that popular for quite a while afterwards. Uh, so that'll be our last question for the day. And uh, we will do this again next month. And we do have an episode coming up on Thursday. Uh, that is, as I said, interstellar threats. Uh, I'm sorry, threats to interstellar and interplanetary civilizations. And so we will see you then. Thank you everyone for joining us today. As mentioned, if I didn't get to your question or you missed the live stream, feel free to leave it in the comments below and I'll try to get to it afterwards. You can also post it over to any of our forums on Facebook, Discord, or Reddit where you can join in the discussion with the rest of the audience of Science and Futurism with Isaac Arthur on any of the fascinating topics we look at on the show, or go over to IsaacArthur.net to join in the forum there or support the show by donating or buying some awesome SFIA merchandise. And all of those options are linked in the video description. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you on Thursday.